some students with fixed mindsets enter our classes expecting to be unsuccessful, while others believe they have a natural talent in the discipline. In either case, these students often get discouraged when they experience challenging tasks. In this episode, we examine how two faculty members have revised their classes and used metacognitive exercises to help students develop a growth mindset and to recognize the benefit of learning from mistakes. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Sarah Hanish and John Myers. Sarah and John are both assistant professors in the Department of Mathematics at SUNY Oswego. Welcome, John, and welcome back, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Our teas today are? None today. Yeah, imaginary tea. No tea for me. <laughs> the imaginary teas, that's what my daughter likes to drink. Yeah, that kind. good. I'm in good company now. <laughs> I have English afternoon. And I have a ginger tea. We invited you here today to talk a little bit about how you've introduced a project on metacognition in some of your mathematics courses. Can you tell us a little bit about the project? Sure. This began, I believe, in spring of 2018 in a Calculus One course. The idea was that Calculus One is known across basically the entire country. Every school in the country has been a very difficult course. So you have a lot of students who are coming in, especially in the spring semester, who have had bad experiences with calculus in the past. And in particular, I've been told by some colleagues that there's going to be some students in there that need more support than I suppose you would imagine. The situation was that on the very first day of class, I had students coming in who have had bad experiences with it in the past. And then at the same time, I have the students that are typically high performing. And they have difficult times also with perfection, you know, being obsessed with 4.0s and grades and that type of stuff. So the idea was that I wanted to simultaneously address failure with the students and perfection at the same time. And I was sort of led to think about this metacognition project, actually, funnily enough, on a flight back from San Diego. I was at the, what are called the joint meetings for mathematicians, and a lot of progressive newer teaching techniques are talked about at this conference. And I'm flying back from the conference on the airplane, I'm getting really introspective. I'm thinking, like, I really need to do something to talk to my kids about failure and perfection. And then it occurred to me that there was this blog post that I had just read a couple weeks before by a mathematician by the name of Matt Bulkins at Grand Valley State University. And he had this idea for a metacognitive project that addressed all sorts of things like growth mindset, fixed mindset, productive failure, and all these different things. And I decided about a week before classes started that this is what I was going to do. That's when all the best ideas happen. I know, right before class and on an airplane. I get really introspective when I'm on airplanes. I'm staring out the window, thinking of all the big things in life and stuff. And essentially, John came to me and said, I'm thinking about doing this project. And I said, well, that sounds cool. And let's see if we can measure if it has any positive effect or not. So I sort of came in on a research side of it of let's see if this is effective for changing attitudes towards mathematics. And since then, I've stolen the project using my own classes, but it really started as I came in sort of more on the research side of things. I think stolen might have been a strong word, but... Adopted. I didn't ask. I just took it. <laughs> <laughs> For the research project, did you do pre and post tests mm -hmm. on attitudes? We did a pre and post test. We used an assessment called MAPS, which is the Mathematics Attitudes and Perception Survey. It's a 31-item survey. It 
assesses, I think it's seven different dimensions. Some of them are growth mindset. Do they view mathematics as being answer-focused or process-focused? The categories were growth mindset, the applicability of mathematics to the real world, their confidence in mathematics, their interest in mathematics, their persistence in mathematics, their ability to make sense of mathematics, and do they view mathematics as being answer-focused or process-focused? Sounds like a good instrument. Before we talk about the results, let's talk a little bit more about how you implemented it. How was the project structured in terms of what activities did the students do during the class? So the idea was that over the entire semester, they would have a selection of articles online to read. They would have a selection of YouTube videos to watch. And it was essentially experts that are addressing these various topics. So like, for example, there was a clip by Carol Dweck, one of the originators of the theory of growth and fixed mindsets. And they were to watch these clips and read these articles across the semester. And then I think it was probably with two weeks or three weeks left in the semester, they'd have to write a reflective essay. It was an attempt to sort of shift the culture in the classroom towards viewing mistakes and failure as productive and as opportunities for learning. Because I think in wider culture, everybody believes that math is just about the right answer. And that if you can't get the right answer, then there's no worth in whatever effort it was that you put in to get to that point. And I wanted to provide sort of a counterpoint to that, so a counter-narrative. Be honest about how many times per day mathematicians actually do fail, that type of thing. So yeah, the main component was this essay that was reflecting on the stuff that they read and watched over the semester, and then there was sort of like daily conversations. Were the conversations online or were they in-class conversations? In-class, in office hours, just kind of whenever they popped up. I remember a couple conversations that happened after I gave back exams, for example, or rather right before I gave back exams. So for example, I would say, you know, I'm about to hand back exams and I want you, when you see the score, when you flip the paper over and see your score, I want you to immediately think, how are you going to frame this result in your mind? Are you going to look at that score and be happy with it and chalk it up to just your natural talents? Or are you going to say, oh, this is a result of hard work. And then if you're not happy with your score, are you going to put it away and never look at it again? Or are you going to engage with your mistakes and make them productive mistakes? It was sort of uh, intervention through conversation that happened on an almost daily basis. Did you notice a difference in the kinds of conversations you were having in class because they were doing these readings and watching these videos? Maybe conversations you hadn't experienced before in the classroom? Yes. In particular, I had students coming to office hours and they were relentless with trying to understand the material because they knew that they were going to have another shot to get it right. And I had never experienced that before. In fact, in one of my students' essays, I had a student tell me that when she's not done well on exams in the past, she would just take the exam and stuff it into her book bag and never look at it again. And she told me that just because of how I was structuring the course, that she doesn't do that anymore. She actually pulls it out and engages with mistakes and the comments that I put on the exam and comes and talks to me about the exam and everything. So I did see change in the students. But was some of it based on the reflections? Or was it also partly based on a restructuring of the course to give students more opportunities to redo things or to try things again? I believe the latter had something to do with it. Because the idea was that I could say these things out loud to them, but I wanted to actually build components into the course in addition to the essay that sort of reflect the themes that I'm trying to communicate to them. Telling them that they can learn from mistakes if you don't give them the opportunity (laughs) to learn from mistakes might not be as productive. I think both components are really valuable. I just want to make sure we were clear on that too. I think that you risk sounding like a cliched motivational poster if you don't actually put some meat on the bones with it. Can you talk about some ways that you actually built that into the course? I did test corrections. 
I don't remember exactly. I think it was get back half the credit they missed or something like this. But the idea was that they had to engage with the mistakes on their exams and correct them. And it had to be perfect. So they had a week to turn in their test corrections. And then I would regrade them. This was very time consuming, <laughs> as you might imagine. But some of the students, I believe, really responded to it. It really sort of hooked in with the theme that I was trying to send. And since then, we've both moved to more mastery-based grading, John, before I did. But a system where Students keep trying things until they get it right. And that really helps sort of drive that learn from your mistakes message home. Are you able to do some of that in an automated way or is this all involving more grading on your part? What I'm doing is, unfortunately, it's more grading on my part. Although I will say this semester I'm sort of doing these mastery-based quizzes, but I'm not collecting homework. So it's kind of a toss-up in terms of how much, it's not really extra grading. I'm just grading more things in another category. Right. I would not do test corrections again. Not only was it a, a lot of time to grade, but then I had issues with academic honesty. The mastery-based thing I have found is, I believe, much more effective. Another thing you may want to consider that we've talked about in a couple of past podcasts is having a two-stage exam where in the first stage they do it themselves, and then you have them break up into groups and do either all the questions or a subset of those as a group. So you've got some peer instruction going on as well. And that way it's done right in class and it can be done if the exam is short enough or the class period is long enough, you can do both of that. A common practice is to do two-thirds, say, individual, and then one-third for the group activity, which has many of the same things. They don't know what they've gotten wrong, but when they're sharing it with their peers, they're talking it over. And it means you only have to grade the group exams on the second stage, which makes it a whole lot easier than individual ones. Right. Yeah, I have a friend, I believe, who's done that stuff like that. So, yeah. The Carl Wyman Science Education Institute, and I believe, has a lot of information on that. I've been doing it the last couple of years, and it's been working really well. Doug McKee was a guest on an earlier podcast who talked about that as well. Are there other things we want to talk about in terms of what you've done in the courses? One thing that we've both done since this initial project is we've taken some of the ideas of this project, but interspersed it more throughout the course. One thing I know at the time that John observed was that he felt like a lot of the students started the project in the last week, right? And so what I've done instead of doing a big project of these topics is I've taken these articles and done the second week of class, you have to read one of them and respond on it. And then the fourth week, you have to do another one and so on. So it's a little bit of it throughout the whole course instead of all loaded at the end. I think it helps having some of those conversations with the students as well, because they're not just seeing the ideas in the conversations. They're not just seeing the ideas in the paper. They're kind of seeing both. And it just helps intersperse it a little bit throughout the semester. I know I've done that a couple times now. I think you've done that since as well. I did a pre-semester sort of essay, and then I did a post-semester essay. Okay. But it was in response to the first time we did that which is referred into the paper. One of my students actually told me in their essay, he's like, hey, I wish I had this at the beginning of the semester. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely like a duh moment. Like I probably should have done something earlier in the semester instead of waiting all until the end. But you learn as you do these things. But the essays that the students wrote, I provided them with prompts just to alleviate any sort of writer's block that they may have. But the students who basically ignored my prompts and told me their personal stories were the essays essentially that I still remember. I had students that were straight-A students that were telling me exactly what I thought was going to happen, that they've been the smart person their entire life, and they kind of feel trapped by being the smart person. They don't want to take any risks, because if they risk something and fail, then that's their identity as a smart person, right? They're not smart anymore. And I've had students from the other end of the grading spectrum who basically told me that the first day they walked into the class, before I even said anything, they were already convinced that they were going to fail the class. 
I had students tell me about mental health problems. I had adult learners talking about balancing life and school issues. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing what they told me. They opened up, basically. That made a big impression on me. Tie into an earlier podcast, Judy Littlejohn and I had introduced something really similar where we had weekly discussion forums. And I also noticed the same sort of thing, that I got to know the students much better because when they were talking about some of the barriers or the issues they faced, they were sharing a lot of details about their life. And you get to know them better. And they also seem to form a little bit more of a tighter classroom community because they also got to know each other a little bit more. It is kind of interesting how when students are talking about their process or who they are as learners, very different than talking about the subject matter. And it doesn't get them to open up and maybe engage with faculty in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And I have found being honest about my own failures in the past has been a catalyst for conversation, right? Because they view us as professors, they view us as the authority figures, the experts, and that we never fail. And basically telling them how many times I fail on a daily basis in my own mathematical research, (laughs) it goes a long way, I think, finding common ground with them and acknowledging how difficult the subject material is. I mean, there's a reason that calculus has a high failure rate because it's a hard course, among other reasons. Yeah, just having a humility with the students and kind of stepping down off of the pedestal in front of them, I think that it helps. Did you want to share some of the results that you got from your study? We saw some very significant quantitative results. I mentioned the MAPS instrument is what we use. It's a 31-point scale. Its reliability and validity has been established pretty well, especially in calculus classes. One of the things that they did was they looked to see if the items were consistent with expert consensus, so with how mathematicians view it. And all of the items were valid with the attitudes of mathematicians except some of the growth mindset scales research. So so that's an important scale as well. And on this 31-point scale, we saw an almost four-point improvement from pre-test to post-test of the students becoming more aligned with the expert opinions, which is a really significant amount. I mean, almost 10% improvement, which is even more remarkable because when this assessment was first validated, they found that there is usually a negative result from taking a Calculus 1 class. So the attitudes get worse pre-post in a Calculus class and ours had statistically significant improvement. In addition, we saw statistically significant improvement among all of the subscales. Now, some of them were better than others. Some were just barely below 0.05 in terms of significance, and others were much more significant. I mean, we really saw that over the course of the semester, they really did change their attitudes. We also had some evidence, as John has already talked about, from their essays, where they said how they started to view mistakes as productive, and they started to feel like there was value in making mistakes and learning from them. And you mentioned alignment with an expert scale. Could mm-hmm. you explain that for our listeners? Essentially, what the original authors, and it was Code et al. that did this paper and developed this instrument, they gave this survey to students, and they gave it to mathematicians and looked for alignment. Particularly, they were looking for whether or not the mathematicians agreed on the items. And the idea was our goal is to get math students to have attitudes more like mathematicians, because that's our goal, right, is to develop future mathematicians. And so we would like those attitudes to get closer to how mathematicians view mathematics. They had high agreement among the mathematicians on every item, like I said, except one or two of the growth mindset questions. So in other words, this survey reflects how mathematicians view mathematics. And that was how they determined the right answers on the survey, whether a particular item is something you should agree with or something you should disagree with. They went with the expert consensus. So now I may be misconstruing this, but 
Are you suggesting that perhaps a lot of mathematicians had adopted a fixed mindset, so there was a bit more variance there on that? I will say that was what the results of their validation showed. Okay. And leave it at that. (laughs) It does remind me of that study a few months ago that found that when instructors had a growth mindset, the achievement gap narrowed and the drop-fail withdrawal rate was much lower in courses than for those instructors who had a fixed mindset. I think it may be even more of an issue in STEM fields than it is in humanities and social sciences. But I think it's not uncommon everywhere. <laughs> I think it's a common problem everywhere. I'll say it. Mathematicians suffer from fixed mindsets. I'll just say it, right? <laughs> Many academics do. Yes, right? yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, the people who choose to become academics are often the people that were successful in school and they decide to continue with it. I mean, it is less likely that people who felt unsuccessful decide to keep going and to go into academia. The selectivity bias there, and that reinforces a belief in a fixed mindset, perhaps. Precisely. What kind of response have you seen from students from, I mean, it sounds to me like this one study led to good results, and then that changed many classes in that you've taught or the way that you're teaching. How have students responded? Generally, positively. I think doing the projects at the end of the semester wasn't the best idea because they just feel so overwhelmed at the end of the semester with exams and projects and everything coming due. So I did get some response of, why do I have to do this now? (laughs) But generally, I think they appreciated learning about learning. I think that given the opportunity to talk about their past experiences, I think they appreciated that. For the most part, I'll agree with Sarah. I think that the message landed with an awful lot of students like I wanted it to. Some of my favorite essays were students who told me that they thought I was crazy on the first day. I mean, you go into a math class to learn math. You don't go into a math class to study metacognition or whatever it may be. I had one student the first time around who basically told me it was all a load of crap. Like, why? This is not working at all. And I had a student the last time that I did this. She was very skeptical towards the end, even. Basically, likening it to just some cheesy self-help stuff. I think that most students responded positively. Have you seen their response impact other faculty in your area, for example, if they really liked having those techniques and things introduced in your class? Have they asked other math faculty to do that in future classes? Or are you finding it's not many math students were actually in that particular class? We haven't done any tracking, so I don't know where his students have gone. I mean, I'm sure some of them went on to Cal 2. I'm sure some of them did not. I mean, I guess most of them would have had just the following semester, right? Did she say anything? No, she didn't say anything. I'm teaching Calc 3 right now, and I have some of my former Calc 1 students that were in this. And they're doing well. <laughs> Small sample size, but yeah, they're doing well. That could be an interesting follow-up, though, to see how successful they were in the subsequent classes. Yeah. Sometimes oh. we've heard anecdotes of departments and things when there's been change, that if students really respond well to whatever the techniques are, that they will demand it of other faculty members. And John's talked about this before in economics. Yeah, when you can show results that there's been some gain, and especially if it comes from students at the same time, it often puts pressure on other people in the department because if you're able to show people that your technique has been successful and students are coming in and saying, gee, I wish you would consider doing this. I did this in my intro classes and it was really helpful. That sometimes helps make change much easier. Yeah. So one of the things that we did look at was we compared the final exam scores of John's sections to the other sections of calculus that semester. Now, there was some other issues that clouded that data a little bit. His scores were a little bit lower than the other instructors. But what was really surprising, 
essentially, if you look at, I don't remember if it was just the final exams or the semester grades, the DF rates were the same among the sections, but the withdrawal rates were significantly different in that almost no one withdrew from John's sections. I think there were two, if I remember the data correctly, whereas there was like five or six on average from the other sections. And so the DFW rates were different, but the DF rates weren't. So I just thought that was an unusual circumstance. So it seems like the students were sticking with his class. And if there's a larger proportion of students staying with the class, then perhaps a slightly lower average grade is not necessarily a bad sign. Exactly. Because student success is partly measured for persistence to completing the course. Exactly. I think because there were more students who stuck it through to the final exam, then his final exam scores ended up being a little bit lower. But again, if you looked at like overall course grades, they ended up being pretty consistent other than the W rates. I wanted to make sure that there weren't significant differences in the rates. And I think it was just shy <laughs> of being statistically significant. Like, as you had one more student that was like, it would have been significant. But just to make sure that especially like adding the test corrections in wasn't substantially making the class too easy, right? Because that's often a critique that, you know, well, you make these changes, but is that just making the class too easy and people who aren't really prepared, are they passing? And so I just did this analysis of the, like I said, it was really just a t-test analysis, but just to see that whether or not it was significantly lower and it wasn't significant, it was lower, right? Just not significantly And then, like I said, I looked at retention rates just more as an explanation for why the average was lower. In a lot of studies of interventions, the dependent variable is the drop-fail withdrawal rates Mm -hmm. because that's a measure of success in completing the course. That by itself could be an interesting focus of a study. I've been running this metacognitive cafe in my online classes for a while, and I did have a student in the class who wrote a few times about the metacognitive element that was introduced in one of your classes. They didn't specify who, but they said, we're also doing some work on metacognition in the math class, and they said it was really useful, and it was nice to see it in two classes. Yay! Good. Yay! (laughs) So there's at least one positive data point there, or one additional data point there. So are you going to continue this in the future? And if so, what might you do differently? Well, I think we've mentioned already that we've worked on including some of the ideas at the beginning of the semester and throughout the semester rather than one project at the end for the reason that it really benefits the most at the beginning of the semester when things are getting started. I think we've also both changed different things about our grading systems to incorporate more opportunities for growth. The last time I did this, I introduced some articles that were a little bit more rigorous with the data and the science, because I sort of wanted to counter that kind of criticism that, oh, this is just a bunch of TED Talks, that kind of thing. So I really wanted the students to see some of the science behind it, the science of learning. I really wanted to send that message that, no, this is not me just standing up here saying, oh, this isn't going to help you or anything, right? This is actually stuff that researchers have thought about before. I had a very similar response the first time I did this. I had a video I posted, which was a TED Talk by a cognitive scientist who talked about research that showed that learning styles were a myth, and some students had come to believe in the existence of learning styles because they've heard of them and often been tested multiple times in multiple years on their learning styles, sometimes even through college, and that's rather troubling. The student said, well, this is just one researcher. I'm sure there's lots of other studies. I don't believe it because it's not consistent with what I've always been told or what I've heard. 
So I decided to modify it then, and I added to that discussion five or six research studies. In case you don't believe this TED Talk by someone who's done a lot of research on this, here's a number of studies, including some meta-analyses of several hundred studies of this issue. And that has cut much of that discussion. They're less likely to argue against it when it's not just a talking head or not just a video, when they can actually see a study, even if they don't understand all the aspects of it. Yeah, so I think that's one thing. We've tweaked what articles and what videos are we showing. I know this semester I gave my students an article that had just come out this September that students perceive active learning as being less efficient even when they're learning more. In some physics classes at Harvard, they gave two weeks at each thing, two weeks of active and two weeks of lecture, and then they had them switch. And the students learned more with the active learning, but felt they learned less. And my students have been feeling frustrated because they feel like they're not learning enough and that I'm not telling them what to do. You're not Uh, teaching them. I'm not teaching them. And we spend the class period letting them vent so all their feelings were out in the open. But then I sort of countered with this article saying, look, I promise you really are learning things. You just don't feel like you are, but you really, really are. And you're actually learning it better than if I were using a different style. So that's one way that we're tweaking the articles because sometimes research comes out that's pertinent. We referred to that Harvard study in a few past podcasts. We touched on it in a podcast that was released on October 9th. I haven't shared it with my class yet, but I've been tempted to. What was the discussion like talking about that particular article, given that they were frustrated? I mostly was just trying to acknowledge that I understand their frustrations and that, yes, the way I'm teaching this class can be frustrating. I agree. Sometimes I get frustrated with it. But I know that ultimately they are learning things and that they are going to be stronger writers and stronger students of mathematics by using this structure. And so I kind of use it as evidence of I'm not changing. So I hear you. Yeah. But. I hear you, but. I had this very conversation with my class today. They're coming up for an exam very shortly. And I asked them, how did they review before an exam? And the most common answer was, they like to reread the material over and over again. And I mentioned some of the research on that. And I said, the best way to review is to work on problems with this. And I gave them several ways in which they could do that that are built into the course structure. And I said, but that doesn't feel as effective. Why? And one of the students said, well, I get things wrong. And I said, and when would you rather get things wrong when you're reviewing for an exam or when you're taking (laughs) the exam? And I think some of them got that message. So I'm hoping. We'll see when they take the test next week. Right. It seems like any time you do anything that's just not a standard straight lecture, there's a certain amount of buy-in that you need to get from the students. And sometimes that can be very difficult. There's almost a salesmanship that you have to do throughout the semester to make sure that everybody's on the same page and to kind of fight those feelings where the students give you a lot of pushback. Yeah. That's the great fear is that when you innovate or you experiment, that's going to go horribly wrong. (laughs) And sometimes it does, but, you know, we still keep going. Because students are creatures of habit. They've learned certain things and they want to keep doing things the same way. And anything new can seem troubling, especially if they're getting feedback along the way that says they need to work more on things. That's not as pleasant as rereading things and having everything look familiar. Right. Passively sitting in a lecture, things all seem like it makes perfect sense to you because an expert is describing it who knows what they're talking about, right? Always feels easier than trying to apply it yourself. And I think that students, even though the lecture might feel better and learning is hard, over time, 
at the end when they've seen how much they've accomplished and you do have them reflect. Many of them appreciate or come around. Sometimes it's not in that same semester. Sometimes it's emails months or years later. Yes. Right, right, right. If only we could do course evals, you know, a whole year later. (laughs) Or five years later. (laughs) That may not work too well in the tenure process. Always wrap up by asking what's next. Well, the first thing is we're hoping our article gets published. It's been submitted. We're waiting for reviewers. I'm going on maternity leave next semester. (laughs) That's really what's next. Sounds like a new adventure. It is a brand new adventure. Wow, I don't think that far ahead, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I'm that unoriginal, huh? But uh, yeah, no, I'm just, uh, just moving trying to... Moving to a new building. Moving to a new... Yeah, right. Getting a I'm new getting, department I'm chair. getting a new office, getting a, a new department chair. Yeah, that's right. A new desk to go with the chair. A new... De- uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, funny point. If only. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Brittany Jones and Kiara Montero.